Welcome to the Boonville Worship Center Sermon Podcast. So tonight we are continuing our class on um, the doctrine of the Trinity. And tonight we are talking about the continuing in the introduction to its biblical foundation. So, Lord, we just thank you, God, for tonight. Lord, we pray that you would be with us as we discuss your identity. God, I pray that you would uh, enlighten the eyes of our understanding. Lord, that you would touch our, the emotions of our heart, God, that we would receive the truth of who you are. In Jesus' name, amen. Today we'll still be in the main thrust of the scriptures itself. So we will not get into other aspects and questions about the Trinity and disagreements with the Trinity, etc. until next week. So I want to open this up um, talking about the uniqueness of God. So I'm going to read a quote under A, Roman numeral 2. It says, Because God is unique, His being is unique as well. Whatever the being of God is, Creatures don't have the same thing. Our biggest problem is that we think very physically. We want to think of being as something you can put under a microscope or weigh on a scale. But it isn't, especially since we know that God is spirit. He can say through Jeremiah, Can a man hide himself in hiding places so I do not see him? declares the Lord. Do I not fill the heavens and the earth? declares the Lord. And Solomon reminds us of this truth when he says of God, Behold, heaven and the highest heavens cannot contain you. How much less this house, this house which I have built. God's being is not limited to time and space, but is eternal and without bounds, omnipresent. And that is a quote by James White in the book, The Forgotten Trinity. So does that make sense? When we're talking about the being of God, we can't put God on a scale. We can't measure him. So when we think about a human being, obviously we're looking at, you know, this. We, we can wrap our head around this because we can analyze it. We can see it. We can measure it in many different ways. But when we're talking about God, we are fundamentally receiving the biblical truth that God is spirit. And then also the biblical truth um, as stated in these couple verses, that even the highest of heavens can't contain God, right? So we believe that God is omnipresent. He is, he is beyond the scope of time and space. He is outside of time. He is beyond our ability to measure. So when we're talking about the Trinity, it would make sense that this preeminent ruler of all creation, this infinite God, it would make sense that it would be both unique and that it would be sometimes hard to understand, right? I mean, it's hard enough for us to understand the complexities of the atom, let alone the creator of heaven and earth. So what we have is we have the self-revelation of God in the scriptures through various prophets and, and through the, um, from Genesis to Revelation, we have this to declare to us who God is, what he is about, how he, how he functions, um, what, what is the nature of his being. 
So for a brief second, I could really spend an entire class just on this subject, but I want to touch it super briefly, because one of the statements um, that people make against the Trinity is the, the reality that, you know, the Jews were monotheists, right? So the Jewish faith is one of the three monotheistic faiths, Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. They both believe that God is one. So one of the statements um, against Christianity and against the reality of the Trinity um, is this, when people look at the oneness of God, they, they say, well, the Jews deny the Trinity. So, so, so and, the Jew, and the Jewish faith is the foundation of our faith, so therefore, you know, we should deny the Trinity. Um, but what I'm going to read, um, a couple quotes from a Jewish professor, Dr. Summers, um, in a book called The Bodies of God and the World of Ancient Israel. So it says, No Jew, sensitive to Judaism's own classical sources, however, can find fault the theological model Christianity employs when it avows belief in a God who has an earthly body as well as a Holy Spirit and a heavenly manifestation. For that model we have seen is a perfectly Jewish one, a religion whose scripture contains the fluidity traditions, whose teaching emphasizes the multiplicity of the Shekinah, and whose thinkers speak of the Sephirot, does not differ in the theological essentials from the religion that adores the triune God. And you might say, what in the world does that mean? I'll try to summarize. Essentially, he's saying that within Judaism, the Trinity is not, it is compatible with Judaism. That may be a new concept. The Trinity is compatible with Judaism. Um, One of the things that I did recently is I listened to three and a half hours of teaching on the Jewish Trinity by Dr. Michael Heiser. Um, some of you may or may not be familiar with that, uh, with that name. But there is a lot to be said regarding how the Old Testament sheds light on the reality of God's, uh, of, uh, of God's nature being more than one. So you could say it's an oversimplification to read the Shema that says, hear, hear O Lord, our, you know, our Lord, our God, our Lord is one, you could oversimplify that by looking at it and just saying, well, it must mean singular, not only in nature, but singular in person. That would be an assumption. If you, if you, if you look into, you know, the, just the basic rules of, of logic and reason, it would be an assumption to say that that verse definitively 100% means numerical in one, in both being and person. So we have to look at all of Scripture to be able to see these hints of the Trinity, even in the Old Testament. Uh, So I'm going to read a second quote. It says, No Jew sensitive to Judaism's own classical sources, however, can fault the theological model Christianity employs when it avows belief in God, who has an earthly body as well as a Holy Spirit and a heavenly... Oh, sorry, I just read that one. The second quote, uh, one of the conclusions that I, that I came to, to my shock, when I finished this book, The Bodies of God and the World of Ancient Israel, is that we Jews have no theological objection to the Trinity. This author is Jewish. He is not a believer, just F- FYI. 
It says, we Jews for centuries have objected to the Trinity, have labeled it pagan, have said, well, that's clear. There you can see that the core of Christianity doesn't come out of a Hebrew Bible, the Tanakh, what they call the Old Testament. Really, they are being disloyal to the monotheism of the Old Testament. That's the accusation. But he says, actually, I think that's not true. To my surprise, I came to the conclusion, somewhat to my dismay, I came to the conclusion that we Jews have no theological right to object to the Trinity. Theologically, I think that the model of the Trinity is an old, ancient, Near Eastern idea that shows up in the Tanakh and in, and in a different way shows up in the Jewish mysticism as well. So what does that mean? That means that as we read the Old Testament, if we, don't, if we aren't looking for it, if we, if we aren't looking closely, we will just read a statement like the Shema and say, the Lord is one and move on. If we have eyes to see, if we look a little bit closer, what we will see is that the Old Testament actually had glimpses of and pictures of God's nature being more than singular. Um, well, it was singular in nature, but, but uh, ha- having more than one person of the Trinity, we will see that. So there's a collection of verses in the Old Testament where God refers to himself as us. Have you ever seen that? Multiple verses. I don't mean one or two. Multiple verses in the Old Testament where God is speaking of himself and he says us. So Dr. Michael Heiser, as I said, has hours of teaching on this topic. Um, It was normal Jewish belief that there were two powers of the Godhead. Did you know that? So this is super interesting. Prior to the death of Jesus... The Jewish people, you can look back in their writings, you will see it over and over again. They they talked, they they debated the subject, they talked about the two powers in heaven. Why did they say there was two powers in heaven? They saw God the Father, Yahweh, in some verses, and then they saw those same verses talk about Yahweh as as a separate person, on the earth, interacting with people. So the Jews, even in their own history, they have a history of believing that there were basically two God figures in the Old Testament. There were two Yahwehs, in essence. A singular, a singular being of God, but there were two... I mean, we stumble in our words when we talk about it, but there was more to the picture than just God in heaven. There was a different Yahweh that was manifesting in the earth. So very interesting. Right after Jesus' death, what did the Jews do with this belief system? They called it heresy. Why would they call it heresy? If you remember from my Deity of Christ class, one of the main reasons that put Jesus on the cross was because Jesus said that he was one with the Father. Jesus was claiming to be the I Am of the Old Testament. He was claiming to to pre-exist. He was claiming pre-existence before Abraham was I Am. So he was claiming to be that second Yahweh figure of the Old Testament. And that's why he was put on the cross. Because he was claiming equality with God. So naturally, Jews 
if they understood that reality, that there was this, not 100% clear, but there were these passages that seemed to hint that God was more than one in person, and they didn't fully know what to do with that. Naturally, post-Jesus, there were what? There were Jews getting saved. All of the disciples, who were they? They were Jews. Who was Jesus? Jesus was a Jew. So Jews were getting saved, and then at some point, the Jewish people, in their rejection of Christ, seemed to have, it appears, that they, quote-unquote, got smart and decided to call this second God or this, this double power in the heavens reality, they decided to call that heresy. Possibly, I mean, it's, it, when we're talking about things like this, we don't have, like, a, you know, stacks and stacks of literature and selfie videos from that time, like proving exactly what they believed and exactly when they did it and exactly why they did it. But it, it, it seems to make sense that they would reject this common belief within Judaism that there was more than one Yahweh, that they would reject that after Jesus' death because they did not want Jews to convert to Christianity. Does that make sense? So that is super interesting. They, they ultimately, um, they wanted to separate as far away from Christianity as possible, and thus they renounced any idea that there was and is plurality in the Godhead in various verses in the Old Testament. That was the word that I was missing, plurality. So there are Old Testament verses that talk about God in many different plural forms, not just in the singular all right, so let's look at some of those verses um, talking about catching glimpses of the Trinity in the Old Testament. I'm going to read a couple more quotes. Uh, but one, this, is, this one is by B.B. Warfield. It says, The whole book, talking about the Bible, is Trinitarian to the core. All its teaching is built on the assumption of the Trinity, and all allusions to the Trinity are frequent, cursory, easy, and confident. In other words, you don't, have to do, you don't have to do gymnastics with the text to come to the conclusion that there's plurality in God. And another quote, it says, The mystery of the Trinity is not revealed in the Old Testament, but the mystery of the Trinity underlies the Old Testament revelation. And here and there almost comes into view. Thus, the Old Testament revelation of God is not corrected, but the fuller revelation which follows it, but only perfected, extended and enlarged. In other words, when we look at the Old Testament, even when we're talking about Jesus, we have various prophecies about the coming Messiah, but there isn't 100% clarity on who he is and what his nature is. The Jews were expecting a military leader to come and deliver them from the oppression of Rome, correct? They were not expecting God to become a man to save them from their sins. Now, in hindsight, we can look backwards, right? Jesus said on the road to Emmaus, he encountered some of the disciples and he he uncovered, he disclosed to them, he gave them clarity from the scriptures where they could find the understanding of who Christ was. So the truth was there, but they couldn't see it until post-Jesus on the scene and until Jesus revealed himself. Does that make sense? So in the Old Testament, we catch glimpses In the New Testament, we get clarity. So uh, when we're looking at the plurality of God, we see that in Genesis 1, 
1 through 2, right at the beginning. It says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void. Darkness was over the face, the surface of the deep. The Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. So here we see God creating, and we have the Holy Spirit on the surface of the waters. Yes? That points to not just a singular person splitting into two, but it points to the plurality of God, where where we have the Father creating, and we have the Holy Spirit hovering. And then in Genesis 1.26, it gets even clearer. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Have you ever noticed that? That it says that God is speaking in plural. God is saying, let us make man in our image. So what do some people do that deny the Trinity? What do they believe? How do they deal with a verse like this? They say the us is talking about angels. So God is talking to a council of angels, or a council of heavenly beings, and is saying to that council, let us do this. But there's a, there's a problem with that logic. And the problem with that logic is it says, let us make man in our image and according to our likeness. How many of you are made in the image and the likeness of an angel? Can any of you walk through this wall or fly through the ceiling? How many of you have lived for 10,000 years? So we, we have not been created in the likeness or in the image of an angel, undeniably. So when we see this plurality saying, let, so God is saying, let us make man in our image, it is giving us a hint. We don't clearly know what the us is, but it is giving us a hint that, wait a second, maybe there's something to this. And, and, and what else can we see as we look through the scriptures? So Genesis 3.12 It says, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, and now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So we again see God referring to himself in the plural. This is not a full revelation of the Trinity, but it does give a hint. Does that make sense? So then Isaiah 6, 8 It says, then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Then I said, here, here, here am I, send me. So why does God keep referring to himself in the plural? In Psalm 45, six through seven, page three, it says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of joy above your fellows. So how many of you know what, who, who this verse is talking about? Any guesses? This verse is talking about Jesus. The Father is speaking about Jesus. How do I know that? This is the O God, your throne, O God, that is referring to Jesus. We know this for a fact because it's quoted in Hebrews 1, 8 through 9. So Hebrews 1, 8 through 9, what does it say? 
but of the Son, he says. So this is the Father speaking. Of the Son, the Father is talking about the Son. And then what does he do? He quotes Psalm 45. He says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And the righteous scepter is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. So the Father is speaking about Jesus and calling him God. It couldn't be clearer than this, because if we didn't have the Hebrews verse, you could just argue, I don't even know what you would argue, but you, you could say that somehow that wasn't talking about Jesus. But here in Hebrews, it explicitly says of Jesus, he's talking like, it's pointing right back to Psalm 45 and saying, the Father is talking to Jesus. And this is what he's saying. Your throne, O God. So why is the Father calling Jesus God? The Trinity. That's why. So then we see again, Psalm 110.1. It says, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Who is sitting at the right hand of the Father? Jesus. Can you sit? Could I sit at my own right hand? This has to be speaking about plurality because you, you would be deceptive if you constantly use this language of us, 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 of, of the Father saying, your throne, but what? He's secretly meaning that his own throne? That doesn't make sense, right? So he, he, there's, there's plurality all throughout the Old Testament, but sometimes we need someone to list the verses, point it out so that we can see it. So Isaiah 63.10, it says, But they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore he turned himself, he, he turned himself to become their enemy. He fought against them. So very interesting, couple things. Number one, the Holy Spirit explicitly spoken about in the Old Testament. Number two, the Holy Spirit is rebelled against and grieved. If the Holy Spirit was just a manifestation of the power of God, could the power of God be grieved? Can electricity, can can I offend the electricity flowing through the wall? Can I grieve the electricity flowing through that wall? Right, so these are pictures of of the personhood of the Holy Spirit. If the Holy Spirit can be grieved, if the Holy Spirit can be disobeyed, then by definition we would say that the Holy Spirit is not an it. The Holy Spirit has personhood. So then in Malachi 3, 1 through 2, it says, Behold, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear away before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. So the Lord of hosts is saying the Lord is coming, speaking of the Lord as another person. This is the Lord of hosts saying, I am going to send the Lord. God is saying, I'm going to send God. If God is going to send God, 
you would not use that language if you were just talking about a single person. So then we have in Hosea 1.7, it says, I will have compassion on the house of Judah, deliver them by the Lord their God, and I will not deliver them by bow, sword, battle horses, or horsemen. Like, wait a second, who's speaking here? I will have compassion, that's a singular person, on the house of Judah and deliver them by the Lord. So we have the Father speaking of another as the Lord their God. Again, we have another hint of the Trinity. It's not, like this isn't, this isn't giving you a modern, in a systematic theology book, definition of the Trinity. That's not how the Bible works. So systematic theologians, post-canon, we look through all the scriptures, and we put the puzzle pieces together, and we organize them in a way that's coherent. That's what systematic theology is. We're looking at all the pieces, putting them together, and then making summary statements about what we find. So, so this is what we find in the Old Testament. We see the, the plurality of God. So and then we have Isaiah forty-eight sixteen. It says, come near to me, listen to this. From the first, I have not spoken in secret. From the time it took place, I was there. And now the Lord God has sent me and his spirit. Wait a second. Here we have the me here is the servant of the Lord, which we know to be Jesus. So we have the father. We have the father sending Jesus. And then it says, and his spirit. So there we got the whole Trinity. The Father sending the Son and his Spirit. And we know just by a few verses earlier that the Holy Spirit is shown to be able to be grieved and, and uh, disobeyed, to be rebelled against. So it's, this isn't just talking about the Father sending the Son and then manifesting his power. It says the Father will send Jesus he will send the, ser- the servant of the Lord, which is another term for Jesus. And then we know, and then, and then it says he will send his Holy Spirit. So again, we see plurality. We see the Holy Spirit showing up in the Old Testament. So now as we transition to the New Testament, what do we find? The Trinity comes into view much more explicitly in the New Testament. Do you think that's to be expected? God's self-revelation in Scripture is undeniably progressive. You have to be careful with that term nowadays because progressive means many things that go far outside the bounds of Scripture. But what I mean is that what God revealed to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was not 100% of what he planned to reveal to all humanity. And I can prove it. So in Matthew 13, 17, let's look at a few verses that give us an understanding of what I mean by this. It says, for truly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see and did not see it, to hear what you hear and did not hear it. So this is talking about the Old Testament prophets. They, they were righteous. They were prophets, which means they could see and understand more than the average Joe. And they desired to see. They were actively searching and looking. They were saying, God, show me. Give me clarity. And it says they did not see it. So that one verse alone should give us that hint that that God doesn't just reveal everything he wants to reveal 
in one generation and then leave it at that. So in 1 Peter 1, 10 through 12, this says it in an even clearer way. It says, as to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the suffering of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. In these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. In other words, again, the prophets of the Old Testament were seeking more clarity and they weren't fully given the full picture. They understood a little bit. They, they prophesied the coming Messiah in, 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 in different ways and in veiled ways and in ways they didn't 100% understand. And we see it again in Ephesians. God chose to reveal more of who he was through revealing the mystery of Christ. Why is Christ a mystery? Jesus, now we know Jesus is the God-man, fully God, fully man, eternally begotten of the Father, possessing the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Yes? So Ephesians 3, 3 through 6, it says, By that revelation there was made known to me the mystery, as I wrote before in brief. By referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to you, or to to his holy apostles and prophets in the spirit, to be specific that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So here we have the mystery of Christ was not revealed in other generations. It was not made known. And then he's more specifically talking about the, the availability of the gospel to the Gentiles saying that too was not made known in past generations. So that makes total sense, right? In the Old Testament, we see little glimpses of like this us and this this, uh, God's going to send God. And what does that mean? Is he talking about himself? Is he like, why is he using the first person and the third person? And why is he using plurality of, of, of name? And like, why is he doing this? We have questions. Then we come to the New Testament and we see that there's the mystery of Christ. The mystery of Christ is not just that there was a man that happened to be good enough to save you from your sins. The mystery of Christ is that God sent him to the earth. Not like he, 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 he sent not just a man to the earth, but he sent his son to the earth. So that there's this great mystery of how can God become a man? And how can that man walk the earth? And how can that man redeem us? So we see the Trinity together in many verses in the New Testament. So I'm going to read another quote. It says, The disciples were indeed experiential Trinitarians. They had walked with the Son. This is super cool. I like this quote. They had walked with the Son. They heard the Father speak from glory and were now indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Are you catching that? The disciples walked with Jesus. They were filled with the Holy Spirit and they audibly heard the Father speak over Jesus. 
you know, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Like they heard that. They identified like God is speaking. Yahweh is speaking. And then especially post-resurrection, they're like, Jesus is God. They, they begin to worship him. They pray to him. They, they, all the different, you know, things that I've talked about in the deity of Christ class, like they are ascribing, they're saying that Jesus is God. And then they're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. So they are experiential Trinitarians. They are experiencing the Father speaking. They're experiencing Jesus living, walking with them, doing his miracles, claiming to be one with the Father. They're experiencing that. And then they're filled with the Holy Spirit. So now the Trinity is not just a theory. The Trinity is not just in a, you know, a, an academic scroll that the rabbis would you know, play with. Like the Trinity is, is becoming real because the Father who created heaven and earth sent his son, they walked with that son and then they're indwelt with the Holy Spirit. So here are some of the New Testament verses that are most clear regarding, um, regarding uh, the, the Trinity. So Matthew three sixteen through 17. It says, after being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water. So who do we have so far? We have the Son. And behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. So what do we see? Holy Spirit manifesting in a physical way, separate from Jesus. And then we have, behold, a voice out of the heavens. So where is this entity that is speaking? In the heavens, his location. He's speaking out of the heavens. So the Father was not on the earth. There's, there's no way to parse this a different way. The Father from heaven is speaking and is, and is saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. He is not saying this is the most righteous man on the earth and somehow I'm imparting to him the ability to forgive your sins. He's saying, this is my beloved Son. So we have the Father in heaven, Jesus in the water, the Holy Spirit coming down as a dove. We have all three persons of the Trinity, all distinctively doing separate things, but all obviously unified in purpose. Yes? So here we have another, uh, this would probably be considered maybe the second uh, most quoted verse regarding the Trinity. It will be Matthew 28, 19 through 20. It says, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I command you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the ends of the earth. So in the Greek, the name here is singular. But we see the three persons of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So it says, baptizing them in the name, singular, of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So you can either get tripped up by this verse or you could say, what is, the, what is the Protestant Orthodox declaration of the Trinity? We believe that God is one, one essence, one being in three persons. So here we see that. We see baptize them in the name 
of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Even if you're looking at the name being singular, I mean, to, to me, that just speaks of that, that God is one. Yes, God is one. But yet there's this distinction. That's what the theologians of centuries past have had to wrestle with. Like, what is this? We have God is one, and then we have this distinction, this multiplicity of the Godhead. What does that mean? So, and then 1 Corinthians 14, 4 through 6, it says, Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of ministries and the same Lord. There are varieties of effects, but the same God, who works all things in all persons. So either we have to assume that he's just being, that he's just being super repetitious and giving alternate, f- alternate words for the same person of God, or we could take it as it says, where it specifically is saying Spirit, God, and Lord. And we see this pattern repeated throughout the New Testament, where the word Lord is generally applied to Jesus, and the word God is generally applied to the Father. And I talked about this in the Deity of Christ class, where I talked about the word Lord is not of lesser being or importance or anything like that. The term Lord is a fully, it's containing the fullness of God, that term. And I can, I can show you that by, if you look, the Greek word here is kurios for Lord, and it's applied over 200 times to Jesus in the New Testament. That's simple enough. That's a, a Greek term meaning Lord, 200 times in the New Testament, it's applied to Jesus. We know that. This Greek word, kurios, is used in the Greek Old Testament to translate Yahweh or Jehovah over 6,800 times. Wait a second. If the term Lord is not equal with God, then why would the Greek Old Testament be using the same word kurios for every instance of Yahweh in the Old Testament? Speaking of the Father. Are you, are you following the train of thought? It, so we have the Greek Old Testament using the word kurios to Yahweh, and then we have the Greek New Testament using the same word kurios to, to point to Jesus. So again, we see that Jesus, that the term Lord is not a, it, it, it's not like God is the main, is like the, Head honcho and Lord is somehow subservient to that. Does that make sense? So in here, we also have three more verses that again reference the Trinity. In 2 Corinthians 13, 14, it says, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. So this, is, this one is also interesting because we have Jesus we have God and we have the Holy Spirit all present in the same verse, but this one's a little different because it's associating a specific ministry of each of these individuals that are different. It's saying the grace of Jesus, and then it's saying the love of God or the Father, and then it's saying the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Are you, are you following? Again, it's, 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 it's talking about distinctives in role, distinctives in personhood. This is not the, just following basic grammar, you would not come to the conclusion 
that this is talking about one person, you would come to the conclusion that this is multiplicity in personhood. So and then in Ephesians 4, 4 through 6, it says, There is one body and one spirit, just as you also were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So we have one spirit, one Lord, one God. If you don't know how to look at this verse rightly, you would oversimplify it. You would see the term one God, and then you would just back up and say, no, I'm not a Trinitarian. And you would ignore the one Lord and one spirit, right? But this is a Trinitarian verse because it's saying one God, God is one. Trinitarians 100% affirm the monotheism of God. God is one. He's one in essence, one in being, and yet three in person. And here we see again all three of those persons distinct in one verse. And then Jude 20, 20 verse 21, it says, But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keeping yourselves in the love of God, and waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. So here again, we see the same, with the same pattern. We see the Holy Spirit, we see God, and we see Jesus, but we see the focus, again, is, is different. There's, there's different actions taking place. So we, as believers, we're praying in the Spirit, and I'm keeping myself in the love of the Father, and I'm waiting for the mercy of Jesus. Like, isn't that beautiful? We see, I mean, th- 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 this is a picture of our ability to interact with the Trinity. This is our entrance into that Trinitarian experience where we're not just intellectually believing the Trinity, we're experiencing the Trinity because I can pray in the Holy Spirit. I can keep myself, I can focus on the love of the Father. I can keep myself in the love of the Father. And then it says I can, I can wait anxiously for the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because we know that through his blood, that is where we get mercy. It is because of the atoning blood of Jesus, that is my access to mercy. So here I am, right here in this verse. I can interact with the Trinity, and so can you. So God and three persons interacting. So here we see that even more clearly in John 1, 1 through 2. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. I am not with myself, right? I am singular in being, and I am singular in person. I can't get around that. I cannot split my being. I cannot split my person. But here we have, the Word was with God. That means, here's the Word, here's God, the Word is with God. It's right within proximity to God. And then it says the word was God. So again, we see, um, we see this, this closeness, this interaction of the Trinity. So the word with, when we read with God, shows distinction of personhood. When I am with someone, that shows that I am not that other person, right? If I am with my wife, 
I am not my wife. Doesn't matter what I wear, how I change the octave of my voice, I am not her. If I am with her, that proves that she's a different being, being than me. She's a, a different person than me. All right. So John 17, 24 through 26 says, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am so that they may see my glory, which you have given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you. And these have known that you sent me. And I have made your name known to them. I will make it known so that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. If you have ever taken an English class in your entire life, it's abundantly clear that this is talking about separate persons interacting. Right? You, you wouldn't say, Father, do what you used to do with the interaction between us that I used to have with you before creation, right? So here we have Jesus' preexistence, which is important. When we're talking about the Trinity, that's part of the definition of the Trinity. We believe that Jesus is God, and Jesus didn't just become God when Mary gave birth to him. He was always God. He preexisted. So here he's saying, the love that you loved me before the foundation of the world. So we have the Father interacting with the Son before creation ever started. I mean, this is, I could spend an hour just on this verse. This is a glorious verse, but I do not have an hour. All right, so 1 John 2, 1, it says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father Jesus Christ, the righteous. You would not use this language if you weren't talking about difference in personhood, distinction of interaction. We have the advocate who is named to be Jesus Christ, the righteous, who is with the Father. And then Hebrews 7, 25, it says, Therefore he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since, we, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So this is also an interesting verse. It says, he is able to save, talking about a specific person, those who draw near to God. So the he has to be different than the God. Again, just basic English. So we have God, but then we have this other person who is able to save. Old Testament, who can save? Yahweh alone can save. I didn't put it in the, I didn't put it in the notes. It's in the deity of Christ notes. Yahweh alone can save. He is the only one that can, for, can forgive sins. Undeniable, clear as day in the Old Testament. And here we have Jesus. He says he is able to save. Those who draw near to the Father through him. So again, we see distinction in personhood and we see interaction um, between the Father and the Son. All right, so we will uh, end by briefly talking about the Holy Spirit as a distinct person and not just the power of God. The verses that speak of the Holy Spirit speak about him in personal ways and attest to various aspects of his personhood. 
The Holy Spirit is not an it. He is not simply a force or a power. He is God. How many of you have heard, even when, when, we, when we talk, we say, we say, Father, we say Jesus, and then when we, often when we say Holy Spirit, we say the Holy Spirit. I mean, I do that all the time. I've been doing it, I've been doing it this whole class. So it's easy to, we don't say the Jesus, right? I mean, that sounds weird. We technically do say the Father often, but with the Holy Spirit, we often just say the Holy Spirit, right. as if we are saying that he is an it, not a he, right? We just, we, we stumble in our words. I don't think God cares. As long as in my heart, I know that he's a person. Just, just saying. I don't, I don't, I don't think it's helpful to, you know, whatever, worry the rest of your life on if you accidentally say the Holy Spirit. He's bigger than that. Praise God. But we can see his personhood all throughout the New Testament. So Romans 8, 26 through 27. In the same way, the Spirit... Oh, praise God. The Spirit. There you go. Thank you, Lord. (laughs) Revelation from heaven. All right. The Spirit also helps our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we should. For the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. He who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Here we see the Holy Spirit helping, interceding, searching, and knowing. Are any of those attributes or characteristics of a non-person? Have you ever talked about a chair or electricity in the wall as interceding, searching, knowing, helping, right? I mean, undeniably, those are distinctions of personhood. The Holy Spirit is a person and not an it. So John 14, 25 through 26. These things I have spoken to you while abiding with you, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, who the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. So here, and again in many other verses, the Holy Spirit is referred to as a he, not as an it. The Holy Spirit is not referred to as simply a manifestation of the power of God or a manifestation of the presence of God. The Holy Spirit is called a he. So teaching is an activity of personhood, not a manifestation of impersonal power. It doesn't say it will teach you. It says he will teach you. So John 14, 16 through 17 says, I will ask the Father. He will give you another helper. So here again, we see distinction of personhood. The Father is going to give another. It doesn't say the Father is going to come off his throne and and do it himself. It says the Father is going to give another, whom I will send to you from the Father. Uh, Sorry, I read the wrong verse. And he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. But you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. This is awesome. This is talking about the Holy Spirit. It's saying that the Holy Spirit, we can see him and know him. And the Holy Spirit can abide with us and be in us. Praise God. 
right? This is Trinitarian belief, that the Holy Spirit is not an it, it is a he. And that he of the Holy Spirit is able to abide with us, is able to live inside of us. We believe that the Holy Spirit is God. All right, and then John 15, 26, it says, When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father. He will testify about me. And I will uh, end on this. So the biblical language of the Trinity is that the Father begets the Son and the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father. In other words, the Father is not the Son and the Father is not the Holy Spirit. The language for each is unique. If you look at the scriptures, it says the Spirit is... is uh, the, the, the Spirit proceeds from the Father. The Spirit is sent by the Father. The, so the Spirit is proceeding from the Father. Jesus is begotten, the only begotten, the Son of God. So the Father is not Jesus. The Father is not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not Jesus. The Holy Spirit is not the Father. The Holy Spirit is the one that proceeds from the Father. The Holy Spirit is the one sent by Jesus. But the Holy Spirit, if the Holy Spirit is sent by Jesus, it's not Jesus. If Jesus is the begotten of the Father, then Jesus is not the Father. Does that make sense? It's using distinctively different language to be able to definitively show you like there's, that the Holy Spirit and Jesus are not the Father. They are, they are one in the sense of they're, they're one in essence. They're, they, they, are, they are all 100% God, but they are distinct in personhood. And that is what we see all through the scriptures. So, and then the last two examples says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom we are sealed. So we have the Holy Spirit sealing. We have the Holy Spirit capable of being grieving again, the Holy Spirit is the one that seals us for the day of redemption. So I will end it there. Does anyone have any questions before I close? Absolutely. Thank you for sharing. Um, so I will pray to close and then let's pray for Lenny. So Lord, we thank you, God, for your revelation of who you are in the scriptures. We thank you, God, that you have revealed yourself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God, we acknowledge who you are. God, in being and in person, Lord, we thank you. It is, there are aspects of understanding this that is still hard to wrap our minds around, God, but we receive the testimony of Scripture. And Lord, we say, fill us. Fill us with understanding and fill us, God, with the manifestation of your love. God, with the power of your Spirit. God, even now over Laney, Lord, we declare in Jesus' name, God, release power into her body. Power into her neck. In Jesus' name, power, Lord, we believe. God, it says, by your stripes we're healed. Lord, when we gather, when we lay hands on one another, we recover. So, God, in Jesus' name, we stand in faith, believing in miracles. God, we thank you. You are the healer the Redeemer of our bodies. We command pain to go in Jesus' name. We command all tension to go in Jesus' name. 
to leave and not return. In Jesus' name, we say, pain, you're not welcome. You're not welcome to stay. You must go. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so next week will be totally different. Next week, we will be talking about history. We will be talking about councils, church councils. We will be talking about creeds. We will be talking about a totally different uh, angle of the Trinity. But there were so many verses that it took two whole weeks just to get through the main and plain of the verses of Scripture. So see you next week. Thank you for coming. Thank you for joining us this week. Until next time, 